My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. My guest today is Professor Louis Dartnell. Louis is an astrobiologist searching for life on Mars and author of four books. Among those are The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Our World from Scratch, which was an international bestseller and the Sunday Times New Thinking Book of the Year. And his latest book is called Origins, How the Earth Made Us. I should also take a moment to acknowledge Paul Harper, who brought Professor Dartnell's work to my attention, and of course, without whom this interview would not have happened. So thank you very much for connecting us, Paul. And without further ado, welcome to Singularity FM, Louis. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you very much for having me. Fantastic. So, uh, Louis, if you had to introduce yourself in one sentence or less, how would you do that? Who is Louis Dartnell? <laughs> well, you've done a fairly good job already. So um, I'm an astrobiologist um, in terms of my research career. But alongside working in the lab and going to conferences and looking after my PhD students, I also do a lot of, sort of science engagement, science outreach, uh, science writing. And you mentioned the books uh, that I've written. So I, I sort of balance the science research against the science outreach as, as far as I can, as far as possible. So uh, would you say that you're first and foremost a scientist, a teacher, a storyteller, a book author? <laughs> I don't know, I suppose someone can be, could be several things. Um, but first and foremost, I am a scientist. I, I trained as a scientist. My, my first degree is in biological sciences. And then um, during the course of my PhD, I expanded out from biology to include a bit more geology and planetary science and sort of physics, which is when I started getting involved in astrobiology, which is very uh, deeply interdisciplinary. It, you know, it sits right in the middle of the Venn diagram overlap of lots of different sciences. And astrobiology is all about looking into the possibility of there being life beyond the Earth. So bits of biology and microbiology and biochemistry, but also ways to try to detect, try to search that life on other planets and moons, like our next neighbor planet, uh, planet Mars, which I spend most of my time thinking about. And that's a fascinating question that we'll come back to. But before that, I want to find out What's the story of how you fell in love with science in general and then switched or decided to specify, uh, to, to, uh, to become an expert and narrow down your scientific interest to astrobiology in particular? Well, I guess I've, I've always been interested in science. I remember even when I was very young, you know, sort of seven, eight, nine years old, uh, my grandfather would always buy me sort of popular science books for, for my birthday and Christmas presents. And I would eat them up and then, you know, ask for more for, for the next year. So I don't, I don't know if I could say I was really born a scientist, but I certainly don't remember a time when I wasn't curious about the world around us, you know, as, as everyone is. I think a scientist is someone that perhaps just takes that childhood, childlike curiosity into later in life and it becomes more formalized. You know, you, you start designing specific experiments to test particular hypotheses and collect data on it. But that's basically what we're doing when we're younger, um, learning about the world and working out how, how things fit together and, and how they work. Um, so I did uh, sciences at, at school, 
picked my favourite science to then study for three years as an undergraduate at Oxford. And as, as I mentioned already, that was biology. But it was I had a, a particular opportunity when I started my PhD at UCL, University College London, where the department I was part of called Complex um, effectively, uh, effectively gave you a briefcase full of cash after your first year and said, this is your PhD funding. Go pick your own supervisor, go write your own PhD topic, your own sort of research proposal, your own title for your PhD and run with it. You can do whatever you like as wow. long as it is on the interface of biology with something else. Uh, and I said, thank you so much for my briefcase full of suitcase, uh, suitcase full of um, research funding. I want to try my hand at astrobiology. I want to extend beyond the biology we know about on Earth and look into the possibility of it being in other places. So that was the, that was the beginnings of my research career, if you like, was that opportunity at UCL. Wow, that's got to be a very generous program. I've never <laughs> even heard of, uh, about that before such generous like endowment and and even mental approach or attitude towards the PhD. They, they certainly student. gave you a lot of freedom, yeah. So certainly within the UK, there's a couple of other doctoral training centers that have been set up um, in, in similar ways. Um, and I've kept in touch with people, you know, I was doing my PhD with. So it's, it's it has been a very successful program in that sense, I think. Wow. Okay. So, but that that's kind of the external search. That's you searching for life out there. But then somehow in your latest book called Origins, you turn your gaze backwards inside or towards us, backwards meaning even back in time, mm, yeah. but also back towards us instead of out there towards the stars. So what made you do that kind of shift or change in perspective? Well, as I mentioned, my research in astrobiology is quite interdisciplinary. It, it mixes between many different fields of science. And for all of the books that I've tried to write, I've, I've tried to make them inherently interdisciplinary as well. Um, so I wrote, my first book was on astrobiology. It was called a, a Life in the Universe, Beginner's Guide. And then I wrote a illustrated children's book with Dorling Kinsley after that about taking holidays in space. Um, but my main major two books, my main two books, which are the ones you mentioned, The Knowledge and Origins, are scientifically interdisciplinary because they pull in lots of different research fields. But as you hinted at as well, I've also tried to incorporate elements of uh, history. So the knowledge, um, on the face of it, that the conceit of the book, the knowledge, is a do-it-yourself guide, a manual for rebuilding civilization from scratch, if you never ever needed to, if, if there was ever any kind of global catastrophe or apocalypse or sort of worldwide resetting event, how could you and your community survivors go about recovering everything that we take for granted today. So it's effectively just a history of science and technology. How do we get from 10,000 BC and the very beginnings of agriculture and the emergence of cities and civilization to today? And how could you accelerate that process of rebuilding and rediscovery and, and recovering um, all of that capability if only you had the most useful things written down about what to do and what to make and, and what sort of experiments to try? And then with my uh, latest book with Origins, what I've tried to do with this book is look at how not human ingenuity or human resourcefulness or human invention has been important in our story, in our narrative, as you would say, uh, as I was looking in, in the knowledge, but how features of the planet itself that we live on have had this guiding, defining influence on the human story and, and the making of us. So right from our beginnings and our origin as a species in East Africa 
through to the emergence of uh, civilizations and cities, then through millennia, through thousands of years of, of human history. How has the stage of the planet Earth been important in terms of plate tectonics and the landscape or the circulation of the atmosphere high above our heads and therefore wind patterns and then the trade winds, um, where different metals or other resources are found? How, how has all of that played into our development, our story and, and our history? Yeah, and I think in the beginning of the book, you even say, if I'm paraphrasing perhaps or even quoting directly, quote, I want to explore how the Earth made us, what planetary processes drove the evolution of humanity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and moving beyond the evolution as well, it's not just our biological evolution, but our cultural, technological, sociological evolution, you know, that these patterns of development and change in many different areas in our, in our past, in our history. Fantastic. So we are going to jump right into that. But before that, I just want to ask you, who is this book Origins for? Who is your ideal audience? Yeah, for the general reader. So for, for a non-specialist, uh, walking down the high street, popping into a bookshop or a bookstore, and just wanting to pick and read something that gives you a, a sort of a good overview, a sort of jest out view, a, a, a global view of the human story, um, of, of our history, and how that has been influenced by planetary science, and I say and intrinsic features of the world that we live on. And then what's your thesis, if you were to sum it up in a sentence? <laughs> well, in a sense, there's, there's no sort of um, one theory that I set out to prove. It's, 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 it's a survey, it's an overview. Um, I was absolutely delighted when some of the early book reviews came out in the uh, UK newspapers and in the, in the broadsheets, so like the, the Times and the Guardian, um, because some of these newspapers compared Origins to a book by Jared Diamond called Guns, Germ, Steel, which is a, a very, very good example of big history, of, of this sort of sweeping, surveying uh, look at our, at our past, our history, Sometimes a bit superficial, sometimes a sort of helicopter view and doesn't always get down into the nitty-gritty details. But that was very much the style of book that I was setting out to write. So I was delighted when it was compared to Guns, Germs and Steel or Sapiens by um, Yuval uh, Harari. Um, not only because those were very successful books, but as I said, it was, it was what I had been trying to achieve. So the fact the newspapers uh, sort of hacked at those was, was very, very satisfying and fulfilling for, for me as an author when you've spent you know, a few years of your life researching and writing and editing and then promoting this book when it comes out. Yeah, those are both fascinating books. Uh, and of course, Yuval himself says that he was inspired by Jared Diamond yeah. to write his own book. Uh, but if I'm to sum up, perhaps let's say, um, Jared's thesis may be that guns, germs, and steel were kind of the drivers of history or... Uh, you know, civilizational conquest even and, and so on and development and evolution in, in, in civilizational terms, perhaps. Uh, but, but then, correct me if I'm wrong, I think if, if we were to take your kind of thesis would sound something like, you know, historians have traditionally looked at, let's say, economics and politics and sociology or culture as the drivers of uh, our history and the drivers of our evolution as a civilization. Yeah. But I want to bring our attention to the tectonic uh, or geological forces 
that may be underlying and serve as the foundation based on which culture and politics and economics and all of this later on developed. So in other words, I, you are setting out, if I get it right, to kind of discuss the frame and the origin of the frame within which the masterpiece of our civilization was then painted on. I, I like your metaphor there, Nicola. Yeah. Um, so, so Gerald Diamond and Gunnar still answers a specific question which he sets out in the, in the first chapter, which is, why is it when we had this meeting of, of civilizations, the clash of civilizations between uh, the West, or at least of uh, 16th century Europe, and uh, the, the sort of European uh, explorers slash conquistadores, the, 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 the sort of um, the conquest, and the indigenous civilizations of the Americas. Why was that such a one-sided encounter? And he comes up with a variety of historical but, but fundamentally geographical features to do with um, what was different about Eurasia as a continent compared to the Americas. And what I wanted to do with Origins was so look beyond that, I, I felt that um, Gunners Gem Steel was a very, very interesting, very, very uh, enriching read, but I felt like I kind of wanted more from it. I think he had you know, three or four very good points to make, but I felt there was a lot more to be said about this interaction between geography and geology and, and yeah, you know, say, the planetary environment that we and different civilizations around the world have found themselves, have, have encountered, and what were the knock-on effects of that. So I tried to paint a much broader tapestry to, to, to zoom out the scope even further than, for example, Guns, Germs, Steel had. Um, but yeah, I do, I do very much like your metaphor about um, talking about how the, the frame or the stage, if you like, had been set by planetary features, planetary processes, and then the, the, the dramatic play of human history of, of civilization has, has played out upon that stage um, that, that we found ourselves in. Uh, and, and, and you know, one of the, the things that I took from your book, which is probably my favorite thing, and I will take it probably forever, is that <laughs> we are children of plate tectonics. And in a way, what you're saying is we still have freedom and, you know, economics, politics, culture, they're all important mm. on that stage, but yet they're all set within the framework of plate tectonics, of planetary geology, which created the clearing and therefore defined the realm of possibilities within which all of those economics, you know, politics yeah. and so on later on uh, kind of came into play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in, in the knowledge very, very early on in the book, I, I make it very clear that I'm not saying that culture or sociology um, and all these other human factors haven't been important in history. Of course they have. But the argument I'm making is that below those, the strata, if you like, below those layers of economics and agriculture and, and sociology and, and political activity, that there lies a bedrock, if you like, of, of planetary processes. And, and often it is literally a bedrock. It, it is the ground and the rock beneath your feet which provide the opportunities because they provide different resources. So there's sort of, you know, a double-edged, two-sided coin going on here that the Earth and different places in the, in the, in the world offer different opportunities, different resources, um, different positives, but also features of the planet have served to constrain or limit the cultures and the peoples that, that have grown there. So it's, it's that sort of dynamic balance, if you like, between those two opposing forces um, and how those have played out. 
Um, so I'm not arguing for geographic determinism. I'm not saying everything has been set in stone, as it were, from from you know day one, year zero. Um, but if you could, you know, rewind the the, the videotape, the, the DVD of history, and play it again, the details would be very different. But the broad brushstrokes, that the general trends, the general themes, would probably be very very familiar. That the same things would would come up again and again. And if, and if you want to take a sort of counterfactual example, I, I talk in one of the chapters a lot about um, circulation of the atmosphere and how that created bands of winds in different directions, such as the trade winds or the westerlies, and how those have been exploited by different people to explore around the world and establish trade networks. And I tell the story from the perspective of, again, sort of um, 15th century, 16th century European explorers and, and the age of sail from a European point of view. But if in the um, late 1400s, if China hadn't, um, for its own sort of cultural and sociological reasons, effectively turned inwards, it started closing itself off from the outside world. It had a very um, accomplished explorer called Zhang He, who'd uh, travelled across the Indian Ocean, perhaps as far as uh, the East African coastline, maybe even further around the continent of African exploring. But after that, Chinese culture kind of withdrew into itself. But if it hadn't, if, if, if the, the, roles, the, the, the role of the dice in, in historical contingency had been different and China had explored in the opposite direction towards the east across the Pacific and discovered the Americas, as it were, before the Europeans had, they would have established trade routes in exactly the same places as the Spanish and the Portuguese did because those are determined by universal physical features of the planet itself, regardless of which culture, which society comes to exploit those features. And, and I tried to make it clear the difference between those historical contingencies and the universals and the constraints and opportunities presented and provided by the planet. Yeah, I think I think you you provide a, a very convincing and very laid out kind of straightforward um, argument. Uh, but just share up with us perhaps one or two of the highlights. One, so if I were to suggest two highlights, one would be kind of the the origins, uh, the original place where sort of humanity was born uh, in, in the modern sense, per perhaps, um, and then as a species. And then perhaps the other one that I really liked was uh, bedrock politics uh, <laughs> in the United States as a, as a, as a modern example of, of how that came into play millions of years later. Well, our evolution as, as a species, as you mentioned, in East Africa, so our, our, our true origins, our true origin story um, in East Africa was in a tectonic feature of the Great Rift Valley. And the landscape created by these huge rents, these huge cracks in the skin of the planet, in the crust of the earth, um, creates a very distinctive landscape where you have ridge-like mountain ranges running either side of a very you know, deep crack. And... That landscape creates a particular sensitivity to fluctuations in the climate. And in particular, the uh, Milankovic cycles, which describe uh, wobbles in Earth's orbit around the sun or the, the tilt of our planet, which uh, have an impact on the seasonality, or the amount of rainfall uh, around the tropics. So you've got this interaction between plate tectonics and the physical geography, the, the landscape of our ancestors, and these cosmic forces of Earth's orbit and the Milankovic cycles. And these interacted to create periods of enormous environmental uh, unpredictab unpredictability, sort of chaotic um, climactic conditions in the, in the Great Rift Valley. 
And so we evolved to, to effectively outthink a chaotic environment. We developed a big brain in order to be able to outthink a chaotic environment and, and therefore um, succeed and, 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 and persevere. Um, and then we spread, we migrated, we dispersed out of Africa, out of our cradle, and then came to inherit um, pretty much the entire world um, as our ancestors dispersed out of Africa. And then the sort of next chapter of the story that I tell in Origins is um, the origins of different civilizations. And it happened you know, a number of times independently around the world where we had agriculture being developed, which gave a burgeoning food supply, a burgeoning population, people settling down to cities. And I'm sure most people are familiar with uh, Mesopotamia, the, the land between the rivers um, in, in the sort of nor'east, near east from um, a European perspective, um, which is this incredibly fertile region of, of the world between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And that um, land between the rivers, Mesopotamia, became the land of cities of, of Uruk and Ur and later on Babylon. And a lot of that story also depends on plate tectonics. Mesopotamia sits perfectly in what a geologist would call uh, a foreland basin. It's a region of ground where it's being depressed by the towering weight of the Zagros mountain range, which was driven up by plate tectonics, by the, the collision of continents, by the crashing of the Arabian Peninsula into Eurasia. And so even civilization was gifted to us by plate tectonics, by this very, very slow planetary process that, as I said already, is a, a created the stage that humans dispersed around the world and, and came, to, came to find themselves in. Um, and the, one of my favourite examples of this deep connection between the human story um, and feature the planet is not just in sort of the deep past about our origin as a species or the origin of civilization or thousands of years of history and the age of exploration, as we've already mentioned, but how even now today with current affairs and news stories you read about uh, or you know, listen to on the radio, on, on the news in the morning with your breakfast or read about on your phone, um, and even politics, um, who people choose to vote for in general elections and in national elections. And you can still see the distinctive fingerprint of the planetary in even the political landscape. And my favorite example of this, and one I give in Origins, is in the uh, southern states of the US. And this has been for, for quite a while now a, a staunch Republican area. If you look at the political map, you see a sea of red with some counties choosing to vote Democrat. But these Democrat voting counties in the southern states aren't littered randomly across the southern states. There's a structure to where they are. There's a pattern. And you can see very clearly a band of Democrat voting counties either side of the Mississippi River. And then this crescent arcing its way across, you know, right across the southern states where people choose to vote Democrat. And that curious feature in the political map doesn't mirror, doesn't map anything you can see on the ground. It doesn't follow a mountain range or a river, um, unlike that, that band alongside the Mississippi. And you can only really start to understand that political feature when you look underground, look at the rocks below the surface, and particularly rocks that are about 70, maybe 75 million years old, perfectly recreate that crescent of Democrat voting counties. And the reason behind this is that those rocks laid uh, down on Earth's history about 75 million years ago, during a period in Earth's history when the sea levels were much higher, it created 
rocks that effectively compacted seafloor mud, which then eroded out again to create soil, which is very dark and very nutrient-rich, very fertile soil. And it was realized in the uh, late 1800s, from sort of 1850s and onwards, that that soil was very, very productive for growing cash crops like cotton, which in that period of history, unfortunately meant slave labor. So a lot of people were abducted from Africa, thrown into chains, sailed across the Atlantic uh, on the trade winds, and forced to work on the cotton plantations along that band of Cretaceous age rocks, 75 million old rocks. And still today, um, the greatest density of black African-American people live along that Cretaceous band of rocks. People unfortunately still suffer from poor economic opportunities, poor uh, sociological opportunities, and therefore people are more likely to vote for the Democrat ideals rather than uh, Republican electoral promises or electoral ideology. So again, again, I, I would stress that there's no direct link, of course, from the rock that I walk across in my backyard to how I choose to vote. But what there is, is this long chain of cause and effect going from economic and agricultural and sociological factors down into soil type and geology and planetary features stretching back over millions of years of our Earth's history. And that in turn creates certain kind of a socio-political clustering, which is then being represented by the election results exactly, uh, yeah. consistently, best of all, consistently over time, uh, right? Uh, yeah, and, yeah and so we have what is it, 70, 75 million old rocks kind of creating the clearing again or the framework uh, or the frame within which Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama comes into protest and to create a social movement yeah, for human yeah. rights and so on in the 1960s. And all the kind of black liberation movement was kind of spread and, 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 and perpetuated from with all the local leaders from there, uh, like Martin Luther King Jr. and so on, connected, all of them connected uh, 70, 75 million years ago to those rocks. That, that's like a, an absolutely <laughs> fascinating story. And when you see the, the overlaying of the map, is really mind-blowing. And the other example that you give in the book, or maybe actually not in the book, but maybe in the presentation, the Long Now Foundation uh, video that I saw was uh, of soccer teams in England. Tell me a bit more about that. Oh, so this, this might be... Um, and labor voting, which is kind of the same district. Yeah, so I in think. terms of politics, there's this link between Democrat voting counties in southern states in the US and Cretaceous age rocks, uh, 75 million old rocks. In the UK, there's an equally striking relationship. And I show all of these maps in the book. You can pick up a copy of the book. Um, you can flick through. You can, you can look at the maps that we're talking about at the moment. Um, and in the UK, there is a very strong correlation between people voting for Labour, which is the major left-leaning, uh, left-wing political party in the UK, and Rocks Beneath Your Feet, which are about 300, 330 million years old. And the cause and chain in effect here is slightly shorter than the American example I gave because those rocks, 330 million years old, date back to a chapter in Earth's history called the Carboniferous, um, which is where all the great coal fields were laid down in Earth's history, not just in the UK, but in huge areas across Northern Europe and Americas and, and across Eurasia as well. Um, and the final step in that particular chain of cause and effect is that the labour 
political party in the UK grew out of trade unions and specifically coal miners trade unions um, in British political history. So again, there's that deep link from the political to the planetary. And the I think that the map I was talking about in the Long Now Foundation talk, which again is available online, but you can, you can just Google for it, you can web search for it, um, was that there's a strong link between the origin date, that the founding of different uh, football teams, soccer teams across the UK, um, and effectively those carboniferous deposits, because clearly we're talking about the Industrial Revolution here. So industrialization powered by those coal deposits, allowing mechanization and use of, of steam engines, for example, drove the process of urbanization, of people moving in from rural areas and, and stopping being farmers and living in cities to work in the factories and you know, getting bored, wanting some kind of social interaction, setting up some kind of you know, entertainment and way of letting the hair down and therefore founding football teams. So the founding data of football teams is basically a proxy for urbanization and industrialization across different regions, different cities of the UK. There's a, there's a curious, very similar example between the founding of um, American football teams in the US. And you can plot a map of, of that, and it's very, very dense uh, along the East Coast, and then spreading across until about roughly halfway across the uh, North American continent, and then nothing through the sort of the middle bit, and then all down the West Coast again. And effectively, this is mirroring um, human movements, human migrations uh, from the East Coast, where the, you know, the colonizers, the, the, the settlers were coming across, um, and then moving with this wave of population density, founding settlements, founding cities, founding universities, which then became, became these, these football teams. Um, and then that sort of strip, the empty strip in the middle, effectively follows a rainfall gradient that uh, in the, some of the prairies don't receive enough natural rainfall, that it's hard to grow enough grain and wheat to, to support yourself. Um, and therefore, no big settlements were founded in this earlier period of, of history. But again, it's this, you know, this fun link between sports teams and something fundamental that happened over hundreds of years, driven by features of the planet. Yeah, the other thing that I really like, and it's another quote that I'm going to take away from your book, is that humanity survives on eating grass. <laughs> yes. I love that. I love that. And then you go even all the way uh, to, to show as another example of exactly what we were discussing just now, how we end up millions of years later all eating either cereal or toast for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. So we, in, in our history, you know, roughly 10,000 years ago, give or take, uh, our ancestors were making decisions about which wild species of plants they were going to attempt to domesticate. I.e. they would start collecting the seeds and deliberately pushing into the ground to uh, irrigate, to tend to, to weed, to remove uh plants they didn't want and begin that long slow process of, of selective breeding to create the modern species uh, that we eat today in, in vast numbers and, and these were the cereal crops so, so as you mentioned white rice uh, wheat maize barley oats millet and all of these it turns out are species of grass you know, throughout the history of civilization humans around the world have eaten grass to support themselves in the way that we put a, a cow or a goat or a sheep out to pasture to eat grass, humans utterly rely upon eat, eating grass. But the problem is, biologically, we, we don't have four stomachs like a cow to be able to digest and actually extract the nutrients out of that grass. 
So we had to learn how to apply our brains to the problem rather than our stomachs. And we invented technologies to help us extract the nutrients from grass. So things like the millstone and the windmill or the Roman water wheel to, to grind up that grain and, and therefore do the job our teeth would have been doing. And the oven to use the transformative chemical power of heat to help release those nutrients, uh, i.e. in a oven that we use for baking bread. We were exploiting mechanical power and sort of chemical transformation to release the nutrients in, in the grass so that we can actually digest it. You know, that, that was one of the key steps in, in our development. Absolutely. And so basically the bottom line is that the earth made us. We are kind of the children of, of the earth quite literally in some ways, but even if we tend to forget that fact, and I, I find that very kind of helpful in many ways, to be honest, perhaps even more now than, than, than usually uh, in the context of climate change, because people kind of tend to, we tend to perhaps take it for granted. And we think that we're so advanced and so independent because we're kind of alienated from nature and from earth. And But I think when we're aware of the processes that made us who we are, uh, and and gave us the food that we drink, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, all of those things, and and kind of spurred our ours our brains evolutions and 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 everything like that. Then we we should hopefully start appreciating the crucial importance for our future survival of of all of the, of perpetuating those factors. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, in the future, if we want to be around for for longer. Well, I think I mean. <laughs> The points you're making, very pertinent points you're making right now, and by right now, I basically mean today, because the UK and France and much of Northern Europe is currently experiencing utterly unprecedented uh, heat wave at the moment. Like it, it, The temperatures right now outside my window are hotter than they have ever been on historical record. Um, and this is undeniably a consequence of anthropogenic, human-caused climate change and then global warming. And the, the point I make in Origins when I'm telling this story about our interaction between humans and our planet and our world is that for most of human history, the, the balance of power has been very much the planet influencing and dictating things to us until we, we pass this tipping point. And, and various people have referred to this as um, the beginning of the Anthropocene, the, the, the human-directed geological age, when we became incredibly powerful in terms of our industry and technology and the number of people around the world, that it is now humans who are calling the shots. Humans are uh, influencing global processes, whether that is the, the composition of the atmosphere or the acidity of the ocean or the mining and distribution of, of, of you know, rocks underground. And, and with that responsibility, and uh, so with that power comes, comes responsibility, or at least it ought to, because if we don't start sorting ourselves out, um, even from a purely selfish, self-serving point of view, we're going to make things incredibly uncomfortable for ourselves, let alone the natural world. Um, and, you know, the sort of the, the animal and plant species that we, we are driving to extinction right now with, with our activity. Yeah. And that's perhaps a good segue to move beyond and kind of maybe even zoom out from your book, uh, which I recommend people check out. It's worth every page it's it's kind of very beautifully written by the way it it has kind of a very poetic prose if Thank i may you. put very it that kind. way i really enjoyed it in in certain moments it was quite quite 
quite beautiful and quite impressive. Um, but if we were to zoom out and look at the big picture, now you're a kind of a, an astrobiologist, so you have the habit of looking at long timelines mm. uh, and the very big picture. What, in your view, are the big existential challenges that humanity is facing today? Maybe if you could give me the top three things that we should be most concerned about. Well, I think that the one we should be most concerned about is the one which is already happening, and, and indeed is the one we've mentioned already, which is um, you know human-driven degradation of the natural environment, um, over-resource exploitation, driving of climate change. You know, the, these all aspects are basically the same problem, that, that we are taking too much from the biosphere, from the natural world, and not giving enough back, not protecting it well enough, not, not trying to be sustainable. Um, and the reason I give that as number one is because it is already happening. I don't personally believe that that's going to drive a collapse of human civilization. I don't think it's an existential threat. I don't think it will drive the extinction of humanity, but it, it could get and it very easily could get exceedingly unpleasant um, for very many people around the world, unless we start doing something about it right now. But if you look at perhaps slightly more extreme existential hazards or, or, or global catastrophic risks, we could start talking about things like a large asteroid impact, uh, the eruption of a supervolcano, uh, such as Yellowstone Park, as a huge caldera of a supervolcano in, in North America. Um, People also talk about the risk of uh, pandemics, which of course is very much at the forefront of everyone's mind recently with, with COVID-19, but things could again get much, much worse. It's almost like we've been given a warning shot um, by the you know the pathogenic world with COVID-19 because there, there could be viruses or other diseases that could be a lot more virulent, a lot more infectious, a lot more lethal. Um, and in the modern world with a huge population of people largely crammed very closely together in, in high population densities in cities and effectively teleporting around the world with modern air travel, those are the ideal, perfect conditions for the very rapid spread of, of pathogens of, of disease. So you know, there's, there's three or four things there. And you know, other concerns include a global nuclear war, even a regional nuclear war um, could be exceedingly destructive, of course. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that because... I personally would put that probably at the top of the list. Um, nuclear war as the kind of highest risk, uh, especially right now for the yep. last three years, and especially since February 24th, uh, the, the chance of nuclear war is, is higher than it's ever been in our history. And that could kill, we have, of course, enough nuclear missiles to kill ourselves and the world around us. Uh, probably back to bacteria, maybe bacteria and I don't know if some other organisms like cockroaches or something would survive, but <laughs> any large organism is unlikely to make it, you know, if we were to unleash all the weapons that we have today. Um, so for me personally, that's like the, the highest risk, the, the biggest danger, the most detrimental. I agree with you that maybe climate change, as horrible as it may be, and it is making things quite unpleasant already, not just in Britain where you have like 40, 41 degrees Celsius, but in India where you hit regularly now over 50. Up into the 50s, yeah. Right? 
So I think I was reading in places in India and Pakistan, 50.9 or 51.2, like over 51 degrees. That's kind of insane for me. That and, and it reaches the point where it's beyond the survival limit of the human body. It, it's not just, I feel a bit uncomfortable. It, it is widespread heat exhaustion amongst everyone who is outside uh, exposed to, to these conditions. Yeah, but having said that, that could create local non-survivability or extinction of humans in certain geographical areas, but not kind of a global Armageddon as nuclear weapons could. And of course, so so that's why for me, nuclear weapons are number one. Uh, but of course, there are people like, for example, Elon Musk, who have said that AI is actually more dangerous than nukes for him. What do you think about that? I think, so, I mean, AI... And, and, and a generalized artificial intelligence, a sort of super intelligence, as people put it, is a very interesting case because on one hand, it would seem almost inve- inevitable. And once you reach the point where uh, computers are able to design faster versions of computers, which we're already in, we're already sort of accelerating the rate of, of improvement of, of microchip design. And once we start getting into artificial intelligences, able design, affect their own successor, you get this snowball effect, you get this runaway uh, process of more and more intelligent systems being created that not only exceed that of the human brain, but, but can then very quickly vastly exceed that of the human brain. So the question becomes, would this hyperintelligence, you know, this sort of God level intelligence, w- would it view humanity benignly? W- would it look out for us? Um, or would it be malicious? W- would it try to wipe us out? Would it see us as being a scourge on the planet and in competition with itself for access to resources and maybe preemptively try to, to wipe out the competition, wipe out the threat. And, you know, these are very much the, the, the mainstay of, of science fiction storylines. I'm not myself directly involved in AI research, so I don't have a, a particularly insightful point of view, but it, it does seem almost inevitable that we will get greater and greater levels of, um, of intelligence and unless there was some kind of um, threshold or insurmountable hurdle to create a silicon-based brain. I'm curious, why does it seem inevitable? Because I can think of nothing that would stop it happening. I, I, I can conceive of no hurdle that would stop um, computer systems and the levels of intelligence, however you choose to define that, increasing over time, and indeed increasing at a greater rate over time. I, I, I can't imagine what an uh, insurmountable hurdle would be to stop that process. And, and therefore, the conclusion being that it would keep increasing. Right. So so one potential hurdle is consciousness, perhaps. We have made a lot of progress. And, you know, some people have debated. You know, I did the last interview with uh, Marvin Minsky before he died. Uh, he's the so-called father of AI. And he said that he was very unimpressed by the progress that we made. And it was all narrow AI. There was no progress on general AI for the last 40 years. He denied that uh, Watson, that Deep Blue and all the other examples, DeepMind made AlphaGo, are any worthy uh, artificial general intelligence examples. He said they don't know basic stuff like the fact that you can pull with a string, but you can't push with it. Yeah. Um, and and stuff that two or three year old kids knew or, or four or five year old kids knew. So he was very unimpressed. He denied all progress on that end. Uh, furthermore, even if we disagree with him and say there has been 
tremendous progress with respect to intelligence. With respect to consciousness, I think there is absolutely no evidence there's been any progress whatsoever. I, I would ask why you necessarily need consciousness to have a very high level of intelligence. So, so consciousness might be an artifact, if you like, a, a consequence of high intelligence in the human brain, but it's not necessarily a necessary condition. You don't you might not need to have consciousness to have a high level of, of intelligence. The only examples that we have so far with high intelligence seem to correlate with, with consciousness too. We don't have any examples where we have conscious, high intelligence without consciousness, do we? Do we not have only one example of high intelligence and consciousness, which is humanity? Yes, and also we have kind of a continuum perhaps in the animal world with you know elephants and dolphins and apes, which may not have the full spectrum of consciousness than we do, just like they don't have potentially the full spectrum of intelligence that we do. But yet we can notice that in the animal world, in all uh, cases where we see examples of intelligence, we see that corresponding with a degree of consciousness. Yeah. And in the machines, so, so therefore the the evidence so far it would seem to suggest that there must be some kind of a relationship there and you know saying that intelligence uh, that consciousness is an emergent phenomenon is just like saying we don't know how it works and and, and, we, and we don't but i i don't think that undermines the point of view that one might take is that even if we've perhaps made slow progress though thus far doesn't mean that at some point sooner or later there will be artificial systems that are as intelligent as a human and I think once you start reaching that stage, you get artificial systems which are very much more intelligent than, than, a, than a human level. And, and when I say inevitable, I, I, I'm not putting a, you know, a timestamp on that. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't even deign to, put, to, to make a bet on how quickly it will take. Uh, and whether that takes you know, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, I think it's inevitable in the long term. I, th I think we will reach that point at some point. Uh, I have to to agree with you on that one. I, I have to say I haven't seen any evidence that it's not possible in the long run. Yeah. I haven't seen anything that would suggest that we can never create AI. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, I, I just don't think we're we're too close right now. In fact, over the last ten or fifteen years, when I've been doing these interviews and and talked to probably three hundred people. Uh, within the AI realm on the record and maybe a thousand off the record, my opinion has changed dramatically. And um, so, for example, I, I've gotten to the conclusion that it's not AI we should be worried about, but humans, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because we think that AI would be the terminator, but we are the terminator. We are causing the current sixth extinction. We are acidifying the oceans. We are eroding the soil. We are, you know, warming the climate. <laughs> so, so we are. The, the, We're already doing a very good job ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. We are the species we should be concerned about, not the AIs. <laughs> so, so I think it was Paul G who said once that worrying about AI is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. Uh, you know, it's a, and that's a big shift in my thinking, by the way, because I originally thought it's, it's a big issue, but now my, my, primary concern is humanity, not AI. I wonder again, though, if it's slightly disingenuous to say that there is something else that we should be concerned about, demonstrably should be concerned about, and therefore you don't need to worry about something else. You know, there can be more than one existential risk. Totally, And even if you yes. take the standpoint that, you know, 
super intelligence AI isn't going to be another 100 years, 200 years in the future, I would still be wanting to take steps now that of we don't course. face an extinction event in 200 years. Yeah. But particularly since that's still a lot shorter than the timescale of large asteroid impacts or super volcano reactions or anything else which could collapse civilization or drive humanity to extinction, now is the time in these early stages before it starts becoming too late or too difficult to start putting in regulatory frameworks, legislature, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even when it's still the stage that you know AIs are doing funny uh, Photoshop photos and uh, playing chess. Um, but like I say, I, I, I am no expert in, in the AI research field. Yeah, to me, it's all about priorities. Survival is a function of priorities, right? So you can have 10 or 20 even uh, threats that could potentially lead to your extinction. But intelligence is useful in prioritizing those threats in the order of highest probability and sort of worst case outcome to yeah. the least likely and least kind of damaging one. And then allocating attention and resources accordingly. That That's where intelligence is kind of useful at, at its best, hopefully, right? So yeah, I totally agree. We, we have to be prepared about AI and the singularity and asteroids too, uh, all of that, but it's just not the first three places that I would say, maybe not even the first four or five places for me now that we should focus on nowadays because we know we can kill all of us today with nuclear weapons, not some other, you know, vague timeline in the future today, right now, if, yeah, yeah. if someone presses the button today, we're all toast. Uh, <laughs> this is turning to very cheery chat, <laughs> talking about the, the end of the world and how it could happen right now. Well, I mean, you wrote a whole book about that. That's why I was trying to, to kind of segue into it. Uh, and it's called The Knowledge, uh, which is basically about the most valuable or important pieces of technologies that can hopefully bring us back after kind of a, a non-full extinction event, a partial extinction yeah. event where you have a civilizational-wide collapse, but you have a sufficiently large number of people who are surviving. So that was kind of, uh, to me, the, the cheerful way of bringing about that <laughs> the, the, topic. The lead into that, yes. Um, and, and, and indeed, in, in you know, chapter one of the knowledge, I look at some of these potential global catastrophic risks, some of these existential hazards, such as, a, in fact, page one of chapter one is um, there's been some kind of viral pandemic. Uh, and I wrote the book and it was published long before COVID-19 reared its ugly head. Um, and the sense it was it was a little too close to the bone because there was then a global pandemic, which thankfully, as I said already, has, has not been even close to being a civilization collapsing type hazard, but but it certainly opened people's eyes to the possibility and and the the, the risk presented by pathogens uh, in the modern world. Um, but by chapter two of the book, I've I kind of don't mind for the purpose of this book what the nature of the catastrophe was, what what the nature of the apocalypse was. It's happened, it's a done deal, it's a fait accompli. Chapter two begins with the important question as far as I was concerned is, well, what, what now? What next? What do I do as a survivor in my community of survivors to go about not just surviving? And, and I didn't really want to write like a wilderness survival book, book about how to start a fire, how to skin the bark of a tree or something, because plenty of those books, plenty of those survival books exist. But what I had never been able to find when I was looking for it and I thought, okay, I'll sit down and try to write it myself, was a book that looks how to not 
to survive, but to thrive? How could you go about genuinely recovering a society from scratch to reboot civilization itself from the ground up? And what would be the most useful and critical information you want to have preserved to make sure it's not lost to history, uh, that you are able to avert and avoid another Dark Ages, as happened in your own history with the, the fall of the Western Roman Empire, and put all of that scientific knowledge and technological capability into a book, into a guidebook for rebuilding everything, um, which is called The Knowledge. But again, it's 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 a conceit. I, I don't really think the world is about to end, at least not imminently. And even if it did, a single paperback popular science book, 300 pages in it, of course, can't nearly contain everything you would need to know. But I tried to at least boil the key things down into their, into their essence um, and provide a, a kernel of knowledge that you could plant into the ground and in the sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland and allow that human knowledge to, to reflourish and regrow again. Um, at least that was the premise. That was the idea behind the book. Yeah, I think you do a good job too. And and there's a, a great uh, TED Talk that you did on, on that topic. Yeah. Um, and I would actually share both the TED Talk and your Long Now uh, found, uh, Foundation video on origins alongside this interview so people can immediately uh, choose to buy the book uh, and check it out. Or if they need more convincing, they can just watch the videos and then, then decide. Uh, but, you know, Paul Harper, who is, again, the reason why we're talking here today, wouldn't probably forgive me if I don't ask you about what he calls, quote, the truth about the aliens, end of quote, because so, you're an astrobiologist. So sorry for doing this kind of a, a, a rapid <laughs> shift here of topics, but but I know you have a young child, so we're on a, on a limited timeline. So tell us, what, where are the aliens? What have you found any? Are you optimistic <laughs> that you would find some and how they look like? And share with us a little bit about your search about, you know, aliens. Yeah, so I mentioned already that I'm an astrobiologist. I'm, I mentioned the possibility of life beyond the Earth. But I think when astrobiologists talk about alien life or extraterrestrials or, or life in other worlds, we're almost entirely talking about simple life, um, primordial life, bacterial-like life sort of my, my cro microbes, microbial life, um, for a number of good reasons. Th th this form of life is much hardier than big, complex, multicellular life forms like, like humans. And indeed, for the vast majority of the history of life on Earth, it's been almost entirely pond scum. It's, it's been microbial life forms, single-celled life forms. And only the last 500 million years or so, evolution's had the opportunity to create multicellular life, animals, uh, land-dwelling animals, and then intelligence, you know, in, in the last blink of an eye in terms of the evolutionary story. So astrobiology is mostly about finding hardy bacteria on somewhere like Mars or Europa, one of the icy moons orbiting Jupiter in our own solar system, or possibly finding biosignatures, the signs of life on Earth-like planets orbiting other stars in the galaxy, so-called extrasolar planets or exoplanets. So that's that's basically the cutting edge of astrobiology at the moment is, is those different areas. And although I personally think that the chances of finding life on another planet are high enough that it's worth me you know, dedicating my career, spending my research uh, career thinking about that and working towards it, I don't personally believe, or at least I've seen no evidence whatsoever to suggest the existence of intelligent life, of technological life, of you know flying saucers and alien civilizations 
across the galaxy. And of course, I would love to be proved wrong. I would love that tomorrow morning we receive some kind of extraterrestrial interstellar tweet or Instagram post or, you know, sort of TikTok video, some kind of radio communication or some kind of interstellar communication that is unambiguously and obviously artificial in origin. And we decode that message and begin a conversation with beings like us, another intelligent alien. But, but until that happens, that there's no evidence, I don't think, of, of anything like us in the galaxy, that the galaxy seems to be quiet and silent in terms of communication signals that we've been trying to listen out for. You know, people like Ray Kurzweil think that we are special, that chances are because we can't see any evidence for any other intelligent species everywhere that we've looked so far, he thinks that we are probably special in the sense that we are probably unique. We're probably the only ones in the universe. Now, others have said that, and, and, and I kind of tend to lean myself more towards that group of people who have observed, look, we roughly have a universe which is about, let's say, 14 billion years old. We have a planet which has only been around for maybe 4 billion of that 14 billion. And we have life on that planet for maybe roughly about 2 billion. Now, that still leaves that there may be or must be planets out there and systems that have like, you know, maybe not 10 billion your head start on us, but yeah, like yeah. billions of years of head start to have our planet's evolutionary development play itself out several times over in multiple of places, given how stupefyingly gargantuan the universe is, right? So, so I personally would tend to think that there must be other kind of life somewhere. We just somehow don't know how to look for it, what to look for, how to recognize it and how to look that, how to see that far, perhaps. Well, I mean, I think the point to make here is you can't really make any kind of observational statement about life in other galaxies. And, and you're absolutely right. The, the observable universe is mind-bogglingly big and mind-bogglingly old. And just last week, the uh, James Webb Space Telescope released some um, a deep field and it showed in something the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length, so a tiny, tiny packed to the night sky is jam-packed full of, of galaxies. So the universe itself is almost unimaginably big, but it's very, very far away. And we can only really talk about detecting life in our own galaxy or trying to communicate with intelligent life in our own galaxy. But even the Milky Way is, is still a pretty big place. You know, something like 400 billion stars, around 100,000 light years across. You know, it, it's a big island universe. Uh, unto itself. Um, but despite having been listening for maybe 50 years, 60 years for radio broadcast, there's also been telescopic studies and surveys for infrared signatures, looking for things like Dyson spheres. So has any intelligent civilization um, built a shell around its star to collect all that starlight? We, we, we we're not finding these things. We've tried looking, and yes, we've only looked in a small fraction of, of, of the sky and a small part of the, of the galaxy, but there are reasons to believe that, as you were saying, with the Copernican principle, there's no reason to believe there's anything special or unique about the Earth. And again, our telescopic studies have found that perhaps small, rocky, 
wet Earth-like planets are pretty common in our galaxy. But there's also a time dimension to the Copernican principle. There's also nothing special about now. We've had intelligent life on, on the Earth for five million years, maybe, depending on how you, you define it. We've been technological for 50 years, by our own definition of, of broadcasting radio, 100 years, maybe. Um, so, we're, so we're very, very new on, onto the scene. We're, we're the new kids on the block, if you like. And if there had been intelligent species that arose a million years ago, 10 million years ago, maybe 100 million years ago, it would have had plenty of time to spread beyond its birthplace, to colonize uh, star systems, planetary systems across the galaxy. It should be widespread and not isolated. And, and yet we see no evidence for any kind of technology or communication signals in our galaxy. And yes, you can speculate about why that might be. Maybe everyone's keeping quiet. Maybe maybe there's some kind of hunter-killer, robotic uh, von Neumann machines out there, and everyone just knows for good sense to keep quiet, not walk through a jungle at night shouting and drawing attention to yourself. But nonetheless, as a scientist, I, I believe that until you see evidence to support a, a supposition, there's no reason to, to believe that that is the case. And, that, and that's why I'm saying I, I would love to be proved wrong. I'd love to receive some kind of interstellar extraterrestrial TikTok message or, or tweet or, or Instagram picture tomorrow morning and begin a conversation um, with some alien, alien, alien intelligence, alien civilization. But, but until that happens, I don't believe in, in flying saucers and, and intelligent life. Although I think that uh, simple life, bacterial life, is possibly quite common across the galaxy. Another thing that Ray Kurzweil talks about is the fact that we are now replacing biological evolution with technological evolution. And he has kind of this kind of a very teleological uh, timeline projected, which ultimately ends up with the universe waking up. And that's kind of the final stage where there is no dumb matter in the universe, but there's only smart dust and smart matter and the universe wakes up. Uh, and, and that's kind of the ultimate stage. As a biologist, what do you think of that kind of a evolutionary, let's say, teleological evolutionary projection that, that he has made? Uh, and what do you think of in general? And then specifically, what do you think of the idea that now we're got, getting to the point where we're replacing biological evolution by design? Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we talked a bit earlier about... Uh, artificial intelligence and designing um, computer brains, designing computer intelligence. And, and a sort of related area to that is the possibility. And again, we don't really know how to do this, and it's a main, mainstay of, of sci-fi. But if you could build a hyper-sophisticated uh, computer storage device and somehow download your consciousness, download your, your intelligence and your personality out of the organic computer we keep in our skulls, and load it into a uh, silicon-based computer, you know, some kind of um, microchip, there'd be good reasons to want to do that, but because you would be able to simulate your intelligence, you'd be able to run that neuronal processing far more quickly electronically than our sort of evolutionary designed uh, brains could. So you, you could live more life, you could live life more quickly, you'd be, you know, be more time steps and clock cycles in intelligence. And if you can do that for, for one person, it stands to reason that you could just cut and paste that process and have billions upon billions upon billions of consciousnesses simulated on the computer. 
And again, for, for, for good reasons of physics and engineering, it's probably a great deal easier to explore the galaxy as intelligence is loaded onto silicon wafers and computer chips than these massive, like, like literally we have mass, we are, we are hard to launch off planets. Um, and not just the human body, but all the life support and the machinery you need to stop us dying in the vacuum of space. We have to effectively take a little bubble of the Earth and send it with us to keep us alive. You can launch spacecrafts that are much, much lighter, much less massive, and therefore can travel more quickly between the stars if you don't bother with, with our bodies. So again, there are good reasons to suppose that some hyper-advanced, hyper-intelligent, other alien civilization, other alien species... <laughs> The idea of sort of traveling around and flying saucers is is almost quaintly a 1950s concept. And, you know, these green bug-eyed monsters walking down the, the landing ramp after they've touched down on the, on the White, Ho- White House lawn. It would almost certainly be um, very small, very lightweight, very fast traveling uh, spacecraft with computers on board to study and analyze and understand what they're exploring and possibly containing some of the intelligences or, or consciousnesses of the progenitor species, of the organic species, which created this inorganic uh, computer-based. What does this tell us about Elon Musk's desire to colonize Mars? Because the way he's doing it, he's not dropping off our meat bags, but, uh, you know, but he is actually loading the meat bags and sending them traveling six months, eight months, nine months, I don't know, a year in some cases, depending on you know, where the trajectories are and stuff. I think the trip to Mars is anywhere from six months to a year. You correct me if I'm wrong. You, you know, you're, you're broadly right. Six months, nine months, depends on how quickly you go, how big your rocket is, um, and different, slightly different mission architectures. Right, and also the relative positions of Earth and Mars. Exactly, yeah. But but you want to choose a time in their orbits when they are going to be close, so you have a short hop through interplanetary space. But But I think it's also important to point out that Elon Musk is not the only person in the world talking about sending crewed missions, human missions to Mars, and maybe some kind of semi-permanent, if not permanent settlement. Uh, and there's good reasons to avoid words like colonization, but, but colonizing Mars as a species. But, but I think it's also important to understand that that will never serve as a solution to the problems we are currently facing on Earth in terms of overpopulation, in terms of environmental degradation, global warming. You simply cannot move every human on the Earth to our next neighbor on Mars. Um, and even with all the technology we'd, we'd, we'd be able to build in the coming decades, Mars is an incredibly inhospitable place to try to live. Far, far worse than trying to live on the North Pole or the South Pole. And we have perhaps you know a dozen, a few dozen scientists living on the South Pole at, at any time. It, it's, it's fantasy to talk about sending very large numbers of humans to Mars. That's not to say you might have a large Martian population, but that would be Mars babies. That would be people on Mars falling in love, having children together, and a sort of native population building up rather than sending large numbers from the Earth. And provided they're able to actually survive and thrive, uh, you know, and and there's got to be a minimum viable number, I think. Do you ever deal with that in your book on, on, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic rejuvenation of, of our civilization, what's kind of the minimum viable number that you would need to kind of rebuild the civilization back up? Well, in terms of genetic diversity, um, you can look at historical examples where small founding populations have uh, arrived a new landmass or arrived at a new island. And it seems from looking at the genetics of their descendants today, 
that you can have a healthy, you know, sustaining population with a few hundred breeding age females in the founding population, because that's <laughs> what the genetics give us information on. So if you have a few hundred breeding age females, you also have probably roughly the same number of males, and you have people who are still children and not breeding age, or people who are still who are older. So you're probably looking at a few thousand people, give or take, to have significant and sufficient uh, genetic diversity for an expanding population to count no problems down the line. But the the uh, idea I explore in the knowledge is that might be enough to encompass sufficient genetic diversity, but a few thousand people is probably not enough to reboot civilization very quickly because you need the sort of ingrained knowledge and you need a, a, a minimum level of complexity in your society so that people aren't just you know, totally absorbed with subsistence and trying to grow enough food to not starve to death, but your society can diversify. So you have some people being farmers, some people being you know, nurses or doctors or carpenters or, or blacksmiths and all the other roles in society that have, have grown up over, over history. Um, so I pick, a, a, for the knowledge, a, a largely arbitrary number of a few tens of thousands, nearer maybe 100,000 to have a good chance of rebooting quickly. Um, but like I say, I, I effectively picked a reasonable number out of a hat just to have a starting point for, for the discussion, for the conversation and the knowledge. Yeah, but that's very illuminating on the Mars example too, because actually there you would have a bigger hurdle to overcome because on Earth, you have favorable conditions to survival, uh, generally speaking. We are evolved to live on Earth one way or another for millions of years. Whereas Mars is anything, everything unlike that, I would yes. say. You, right? I mean, you can't even take, um, so there are some things you can take for granted, even on the South Pole, such as there is plenty of water around me. I might need to melt it, but I've got easy access to water drink and I can breathe the air. You cannot even take those fundamentals for granted on Mars, which is which is explored very nicely in um, uh, Andy Weir's book, The Martian, which was turned into a blockbuster film with, with Matt Damon. And to be honest, I, I'm still kicking myself to this day because The Martian book and then film is basically the Venn diagram overlap of my research about Mars and surviving there and my book, The Knowledge, about going right back to basics to, to reinvent and rediscover everything. And if only I'd had the idea that Andy Weir had I would be getting the six-figure advances and <laughs> retiring early. But um, it's, it's a wonderful idea. It's, it's a wonderful example of sort of competent porn, I explain it as this, this one man, this astronaut, um, working out how to survive and hack and bodge and jury rig stuff to survive in this unrelenting, brutal environment of Mars. And, and for example, getting water to drink and air to breathe. Yeah, but the crucial point here is that that's a survival story. It's not a thriving story. It's not a story about civilization, which is why, as Kim Stanley Robinson pointed on my podcast, and he's written extensively on Mars and global warming too, uh, you know, Mars would always be kind of like, and, and you even gave the same example, South the South Pole. He's been twice to the South Pole there, and he says it's very cool science. It's very cool place to visit, but it's, it's and we've been there for a hundred years now, and it's got minimal to marginal to near zero impact on us as a civilization and zero impact on our survival overall so far. Uh, so it's nice, it's cool, it's interesting, we should do it, we should be there, but it really isn't like a make or break it thing for us. No, but, but, but to be fair, we are exploring Antarctica and we've got research stations there for other reasons. 
it's not for preserving civilization. Sure, but Elon's uh, argument is that, you know, Tsiolkovsky's argument, which is, you know, Earth is the cradle of our civilization, but one cannot stay forever in the cradle. And, you know, you shouldn't be putting all your eggs in one basket, therefore you should spread the risk by going to another planet. It all makes sense, but it's just the physics in the meat bags that we are doesn't quite work there, I think. No, I, I, I agree with the argument made that you don't want to keep all your eggs in one basket, and Mars is one of the easier places in the solar system to colonize, you know, particularly because of its its proximity, its nearness. But but we are not even close to being there to have a self-sustaining. And the self-sustaining is the important thing, as you were. That's the key to, to survival. A, yeah. a large population which, even if Earth were to be smacked by a large asteroid and wiped out, could keep itself going indefinitely and growing enough food and, and not worrying about you know mechanical failure. We are a long way from there. But of course you need to take baby steps in the early stages to get to the to the, to the destination. Yeah, but Elon is talking 2030, 2035. That's the problem, right? I mean, so... it's fantasy, right? And, 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 and at the end of the day, a big, a big mantra of the, of the tech world, the Silicon Valley, is fake it till you make it, or at least trying to convince the people who might want to be investing in you that this is a very reasonable short-term investment to, to get, get their return. Um, scientifically, engineering-wise, I do not see this happening by the 2030s. Louis, I love chatting to you, but I know time is advancing. And again, you have a very young child. So let's bring our conversation with the last uh, few questions here. Where quickly, perhaps, where does ethics and the human story fit into this picture that we've discussed so far? I mean, so we've we've talked about quite a wide range of, of, of different topics, but there's some really interesting sort of ethical dimensions or moral dimensions to astrobiology for example, um, and the terraforming of Mars or, or the, the widespread human settlement of Mars. Because let's say we do find indigenous native Martian life. And for reasons I've already explained, we're not expecting anything more complicated than you know, microscopic, ultra-hardy bacteria. But let's say we, we find that there are Martian bacteria there. Do we, because of that, try to turn Mars into some kind of um, nature reserve? Do we try to preserve their natural environment in a pristine state without human interference, human interaction, and, and trying to change it, um, as we do with nature reserves on Earth? Or, which I suspect will probably happen, people realise, well, is there anything intrinsically special about this bacterium, just because it happens to evolve on Mars? You know, I don't have any ethical qualms um, you know, washing my hands after going to the toilet or indeed dousing my, my toilet or my sink with bleach and effectively committing microbial genocide. I'll happily kill billions of bacterial cells on Earth without, without a second thought. Why should we, um, um, you know, give any special ethical priority or preference to bacteria on, on Mars? Um, so, that, you know, there's something of a debate there to be had about uh, intrinsic value and utility and, and how and how highly we, we value different things, but also the uncomfortable truth of how that might get in the way of human aspiration or exploration uh, or money to be made um, and therefore what decisions are likely to be to be made. Uh, let me quote you here in the knowledge you say uh, or, or in the video about knowledge maybe you say, Quote, it is science that we use to build our world and it is science that we need to rebuild again from scratch. So I agree with you, but I would say that Lewis is necessary, but not sufficient. 
In other words, yes, we can't do it without science, but it may be science that helps us destroy ourselves. So it's clearly not sufficient to help us or to sustain our survivability for the long run, for the future. You know, we've only had science for maybe a couple hundred years yeah. proper, and it's very possible we don't even make it through this 21st century as a civilization or maybe even as a species. It's possible. It's a definite possibility. In fact, the world's doomsday clock is right now at 100 seconds to midnight for the last three years, which is uh, the highest it's ever been, much higher than the Cuban Missile Crisis and for the longest duration ever. So 12 Nobel laureates and 120 of the smartest scientists believe that we are the closest to potential extinction that we've ever been. So wouldn't you say that we need ethics if we need to survive in addition to science? Absolutely. I, I would I would not disagree with that. But again, there's there's something of a conceit, something of a sleight of hand behind the book, behind the knowledge, for example, that I am a scientist and you have to write a book that is a particular category because simply the booksellers need to know what shelf to put it on in the bookstore. So I wanted to write a popular science book that covered the science and technology and the understanding and the inventions you would need to rebuild the world or, or, or to um, have a society. But, but of course, I would never deny, I would never try to pretend that, that is uh, sufficient. That's not all you need for a society. And indeed, I would not want to live in a society that was entirely dictated by science and run by scientists because you need to have you know, the cultural element to make life worth living. You need the art, you need the music, you need the... Um, you know the sculptures and and all these other elements and aspects to what it means to be to be human. But the, the point I made in the knowledge is one thing is special about science is it builds upon itself, and more discoveries lead to better ways to understanding the world, which lead to more discoveries. And also, to a certain extent, you can condense science down to its essence, to, to this kernel, to the seed that you can plant in the ground that I mentioned. Whereas you can't really do the same with culture. There's no real algorithm, compression algorithm for culture. If you want to preserve music, the only way you can do that is to write down every single note to every single movement, every single piece of music that's ever been written. And again, from the sort of point of view of, of the conceit of the knowledge, would that music written in our world necessarily have any cultural relevance or significance to people living perhaps 200 years in a post-apocalyptic rebooting civilization? Or would they simply... Be composing their own music? Would they be doing making their own art? And, and so therefore I think art and, and culture is specific to a particular society at a particular time. Um, I can't remember the last time I went to an art gallery to look at um, ancient Roman art other than for the inherent interest that it's, that it's old, but it, it doesn't really connect to me in the same way that more modern art, more recent art does. But on the other hand, science is universal. It is true no matter where you are or when you are, and you can write something down now and it would be just as useful 500 years in the future. So that was the rationale I used to definitely avoid talking about other cultural aspects of society in this popular science book of the knowledge. But of course, they are as critical and, and as necessary, as meaningful for, for human life, for, for the human, human existence. Unfortunately, we're really running out of time, but I would like to propose to you, uh, and we don't have time to go into it, that actually music and storytelling both have long, a higher longevity than science, and they connect with us at a much, much deeper level. 
and therefore would have a much uh, longer lasting value because we have kind of been wired to story the world around us for tens of thousands, yeah. maybe a hundred thousand of years. And science as a process has been around for much, much shorter as we discussed. So story gets us at a much deeper level. Music may be contemporary to story or maybe even preceding story. We don't know. But music, especially those deep basal rhythms, you know, I they get us now today. I'm sure they're going to get the people 200 years from now uh, at, at one level or another, as long as they're still biological and they're not mind uploads, uh, which is when we'll sever the connection. But as long as they carry our genes, our DNA, which evolved for or with music, uh, there's no way to escape that. I think it's so powerful. And, and if anything, um, storytelling, narrative, and science are effectively the same thing further back in history. Because by science, so science as a process today is just an efficient invention to explore the natural world, understand it, deduce its patterns, and, and then be able to exploit them. So it's just a way of generating understanding. And before the scientific revolution in the you know, so 1500s, 15th century, we, we still had understanding, we still had technology and capability. It just came about in a slightly different way. And our ancestors did have an understanding. They did have a knowledge of the world around them. And they communicated and shared it and preserved it within their communities through oral histories. So in that sense, storytelling and narrative and science slash understanding are the same thing if, if you go back further enough. So, you know, absolutely. I, wouldn't, I would not argue with you on, not, on that fact, on that point. Well, Louis, where can people find more about you and your work? Ah, so um, I understand that you're going to be providing links uh, to the books and some of the videos uh, that I've created in the past. Uh, my own website is lewisdartnell.com. And if you click through on that, you can go to the dedicated websites uh, for the knowledge where there's plenty of short videos you can watch. There's lots of recommended reading lists. So I recommend books, so fiction books as well as science books, nonfiction books that look at a similar question about how can you go back to scratch, back to basics and, and recover everything, which is effectively the story of uh, Robinson Crusoe or Swiss Family Robinson or The Martian, as I've mentioned already, and a whole bunch of other like really edifying books that, 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 that are fulfilling to read because you're watching through someone else's eyes as they recover the world around them. Uh, so that's the hyphen knowledge.org. That's, that's um, the book's website. Um, and you can explore it through my own website, as I, as I say. Louis, we've covered a very vast variety <laughs> of topics on my podcast, as we usually tend to do, all the way from the kind of the universe and the cosmology of the universe to aliens, to uh, our own origins, to potentially giving birth to AI, to consciousness, to uh, the importance of uh, uh uh, planetary tectonics and uh, planetary geology and such a wide scope and variety. What is the kind of single most important thing or one message that you want to send us away with? Um, so I think that the sort of common theme across all of my work, across my academic research in astrobiology and the books I write is, is curiosity. You know, it's just it's okay to be curious about things around you. It's okay to ask questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question because it's only by asking those questions and either trying to answer them yourself or by talking to other people that you can you know, absorb that information, that understanding and you know, sort of to grow. Um, and that's, that's what I've tried to do throughout my career is just ask plenty, plenty stupid questions as I go.
and I appreciate what you do, Louis. I'm a fan of your work and your books. And by the way, I come from the Socratic school of uh, investigation, uh, which is why I kind of wrote a paper many, many years ago called The World is Transformed by Asking Questions. Mm. And of course, Socrates was famous for, for chasing people around the marketplace, asking them uncomfortable, unpleasant questions. <laughs> But yet in, in that way, gave birth to you know western philosophy and, and maybe even western civilization so so i totally agree with you and i think your books actually present a very interesting perspective on the question of our origins which i think is a question that any thinking reasonable rational human being should ask and has already asked hopefully themselves and you provide a very good story that we should all uh educate ourselves on and, and learn from. So thank you very much for that. Thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 